Hello and welcome to this episode of The Pod Presents Primarily Context-Based. This podcast is a collaboration between CTO Craft and Skiller Whale, and it was inspired by the Q&A site Stack Overflow, where questions have a single right answer. And questions can be closed and archived because they're considered primarily opinion-based. Well, we think that the most interesting questions don't have a single right answer, and they are primarily context-based. And in this podcast, we're going to take one of those questions, talk about a range of answers and the context which makes them appropriate. My name's Howell Carver. I'm the CEO and one of the founders of Skiller Well. We do live team coaching for tech teams, which is individually personalized, hands-on sessions with a live expert delivered remotely in one-hour chunks. I've been a CTO for the 10 or 12 years before starting the company. I've run dinners for CTOs for three years. I've been a CTO coach. And one thing I've seen is that the same questions come up again and again, but with different answers every time. And that's because context is critical. The question we're going to be talking about today is how do I prepare my tech organization for IPO? And here to help me answer that is Jonathan Lister-Parson, CTO from Pensionbee. Jonathan, hello. Tell us about yourself. Hi, Al. Thanks very much for having me. Nice to be on. I'm looking forward to uh, some context-based conversation. And as an attendee at your tech dinners, I can uh, definitely vouch for people sharing the same problems with, with slight nuances of implementation detail. Okay, so I'll just give you a little bit of background about myself. I'm currently the CTO at Pension B. Uh, we're an online pension provider based in the UK and recently been through an IPO. I joined Pension B at the beginning of Pension B. I met Romy, the CEO, in 2014 uh, when she was um, looking to start a business that would help consumers that had problems with their pensions, which, as she was finding out by talking to friends and family, was pretty much everybody that she could talk to, um, including me. So without any background in pensions, we do what a lot of people do and think, oh, yes, that's something that we can make a difference to. And that, that was how Pension B got, got, got going. Before that, I was running a small digital product consultancy called Penrose um, with a couple of partners. And we'd built up, a, I guess, a comp- core competence of um, specializing in early stage product development. So we were helping entrepreneurs go from either idea to minimum viable product or from MVP to sort of a fundraising milestone. And what we'd got really good at was doing quite a lot with very little resources, you know, in terms of people power or or money. And so our service was that we were giving you all of the bits that you needed to, to cross those milestones, but in one, one package, one, one easy fee that was affordable. Um, so we were doing a lot of work, you know, kind of lean, the lean startup methodology, customer development, um, you know, early stage product development, that kind of thing. And when I met Romy, that was very much the the pitch. Um, so I was initially not not going to be the the, the full time CTO of Pension B. I was pitching the the services of our business to to Romy, and just the way that timing worked out. Uh, although we got the contract to to, to do this work for Pension B. Um, our, our company, our partnership decided that, you know, we'd done this for five, six years and it was probably time to do something else. Um, and so I ended up uh, taking on the role full time at Pension B, which was great because all of the stuff that I'd learned in the five, six, seven years we've been doing this, um, I could then take and see through uh, just, you know, past that in early, initial early stage process um, and keep it growing um, and keep all those ideas, you know, see, see the results of those ideas actually implemented through the life cycle of the business, which has been a really, really good journey. 
And I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on the IPO in particular, because it's something I've never been through myself. So I'm ex expecting to learn a lot from you. Before we get into the question of how you prepare for the IPO, I wanted to start by answering the question of why you need to. If, if someone were in front of you saying, can I get away with not doing anything? You know, my tech organization is running just fine. Why on earth would I need to change anything just because the company is going to IPO shortly? Yes. Well, I, th I think the question to ask actually is even earlier in the, it, it is sort of a, a pre-question to that question, which is, do you even need to do an IPO or is it even the right path for your company? And there are lots of ways that you, I mean, it depends what you want. There are lots of ways that you can exit if that's what you, you know, if you're a very VC driven company, you have investors who need to exit that investment then an IPO can be a, a good option, but there are other options as well, you know, trade purchases and um, uh, mergers and things. Um, now we have SPACs as well, special purpose acquisition companies, direct listings. Mm -hmm. So there's lots and lots of different options for, um, you know, that kind of, uh, if you like, the big liquidity event, which, which, which an investor-driven, like a VC-driven firm would need. Now, for Pension B, we were not, a VC-driven firm, um, our investors have always been more on the angel side of the uh, of the investor spectrum, and so we didn't have that pressure, and that that was that was really good for us because it meant that we had a lot more options, um, or there was you know, there was more pressure. We weren't being forced down any particular route, and mm -hmm. the IPO was something that we saw as a way of creating um, more public ownership of a company that was explicitly serving consumers. So not only are our products and services there to help consumers out, we can also make them part of the success of the business um, by allowing them to become part owners of the business. And the other reason that we decided to do it was for the very sort of traditional, but now um, not as important, it seems, reason that an IPO is a great way to bring fresh capital into the business. And you know, IPOs, that is their original purpose. It's it's a fundraising um, moment. And I think IPOs are often seen more as liquidity events for investors and they're sort of seen as this final, you know, goalpost for lots of entrepreneurs. But I don't, you know, that's certainly not where they came from. Um, and, and for me, I think it's a lot more healthy and sustainable to see them as a fundraising event that, that puts your business into broader ownership and is is you know usually an injection of quite a lot of capital, and therefore is the you know an ability for your business to to launch into its next chapter of development. Which is why I think some of the you know direct listings, for example, where you're not getting any fresh fresh capital in, um, wouldn't necessarily be a great solution for a company that had gone down the road that we'd gone. In terms of preparing for that and preparing the tech technical side of the company for that, what did you have to do compared to when you were raising? your rounds from angels earlier in the company's history. I'm assuming that when you when you go for go through with an IPO, the, the due diligence that's done is more onerous and has, is broader in scope. Yeah, it certainly it certainly is, yes. Um, so one caveat to my perspective is that I was inputting into this process from the position of you know, the CTO of the company, so very much the technology perspective. I'm also a board member, so I got a, an overview of the, the whole process. But 
there were a large number of people involved in the process of preparing for an IPO. And I think that would be um, inevitable at any company. I mean, our, our IPO was a relatively small IPO, certainly given that we were kind of bookended by TransferWise um, by Deliveroo or Wise and Deliveroo. And they were much, much bigger. Um, so, you know, even with our relatively modest sized IPO, we still had a huge number of people involved. So I'll do my best to kind of represent what I saw. Um, but I think something that, you know, anybody listening to this um, should take into account is that this is not a playbook for doing an IPO because, you, you know, you need a huge number of, of helpers and advisors, both inside and outside the company. Um, and, you know, it's not possible for one person to sort of see everything that they're doing. Mm. So just to give you a flavor of that, um, we were working with uh, obviously lawyers, um, accountants, investment bankers. You know, we worked with, with uh, KBW, the investment bank, and they really helped to prepare a lot of the groundwork for the, for the IPO in terms of finding investors and helping prepare materials for the, the, the roadshow. Um, we also worked with lots of auditors. So um, there, is, you know, there are these gates that you have to go through in terms of getting an auditor to sign off on you know, the statements that you're making. You also have to have your lawyers pretty much sign off on every line of every document that you publish in relation to the IPO, which includes your presentations to analysts and investors, but also your, uh, you know, the FCA registration document and the prospectus. In America, it's the S1. Here, it's the registration document and the prospectus. It's, they're, they're huge. I mean, that would, they're hundreds of pa pages long. So you know, generating this body of documentation is, is a work for a team, for sure. On the technology side, uh, preparing for the for the IPO is very very much about preparing an organisation that can demonstrate that its technology is fit for purpose for the business and a business that's going into a public company context where you have more scrutiny. So that means things like uh, your information security controls. You know how how confident can you be that nobody can easily commit fraud, for example, or that uh, customer data, you know, isn't going to get lost or corrupted. Because actually a lot of the process is about demonstrating that once you start to publish accounts into the public record, that those accounts are accurate um, from, from the, you know, the makeup of the business and all the, all the systems that feed data into that, that there's no sort of errors within those systems or no opportunity for people to come and change numbers. So there's information security and then and then there's lots of other ways that you know technology can affect the I suppose the the, the fortunes of the business and you have to sort of demonstrate that your te technology is fit for purpose for a growing business and all the plans that you're you know, you're you're thinking about. It sounds like there's there's two parts of this right there's there's having the organization that meets all those requirements and is building something that's secure and fit for purpose and then there's documenting that and proving that so that the auditors and lawyers are satisfied with each each statement that you've made each claim about the technology how much of the work was around the documentation and the proof of what you'd done and how much was actually changing the technology organization itself I think in the in our case we had recently certified to the ISO 27001 standard for information security. And the, to do that, we'd had to already generate a lot of documentation and evidence that we were adhering to the policies that we'd laid out. So part of the purpose of doing that was that when we were being 
exposed to all of this scrutiny by the auditors around the IPO process, we were able to, you know, bring out either evidence that we'd used during the audit, the, the, the ISO audit, or we could bring out the report and say, right, we've had an external auditor who's not affiliated with the company. They've come and checked out these systems and controls. Here's what they've said about it. You know, they've said that we're in compliance with these things. Here are their findings. This is where we have to, you know, put in some improvements. Um, you know, it's all laid bare for you. And so that that massively short circuits the process of being uh, audited by the, 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 the financial auditors who are looking at these financial controls because they can see, ah, right, you take information security seriously, you take data governance seriously, you've embedded information security practices within your organization, um, you know, your contracts and management with, of suppliers is, is up to scratch, your business continuity is up to scratch, um, the way that you employ people is, is done in a professional manner and you know, you're doing your background checks and you do your onboarding and offboarding well, because all this stuff comes into the ISO standard. So it's a very, very deep um, look into the way that you operate your business as a business that manages information. And it really touches every part of the business. And so that was just, it was extremely useful um, for, for leading up to this IPO. Mm, interesting. Okay, so that could be a good starting point. Yeah, the balance of work between what, you know, what we're doing in terms of changing the organization versus uh, just evidencing what we were doing. It's actually, it, it wasn't really that there wasn't an either or. You know, we had already gone through a multi-year process of building up an organization that could be compliant like this. Um, and, and one of the things that I've said a few times is that when you're planning an IPO, you know, we, we were planning an IPO as an option from the beginning of the company, from, from the inception of the company. And uh, Romy, our CEO, said something to me you know, very early in the development of the company, which always stuck with me, which was that if you build a company that can IPO, then everything else is an option. Hmm. And I think that's, you know, that's, that means that, you know, if you put in your government governance practices, if you put in a, a board that's, um, you know, balanced, if you put in the right levels of kind of risk management and controls, uh, you know, just, just to build a professional organization with the view of how does this look relative to things like the corporate governance standard? Um, you know, what's the gap between here where we are today and, and there where we want to be when we IPO. And you, you, you progressively close that gap over a number of years. By the time that you're actually at the point where you want to IPO, then it sort of feels quite familiar, you know, the things that people are asking you to do and comply with. Mm. I'm wondering, because the, the nature of what Pension B does is, is very financial, right? You're, you're working with the pension, the pension pots of, um, of real consumers. Absolutely. How much do you think that changed the preparation that you had to do? And I ask this simply because the standards are higher when you're doing something that's so important to individual people. Yeah, no, that's a really fair question because what, everything that I've just said was in a way an easier decision for us to make, you know, in terms of building up a strong foundation of a well-governed company because we kind of had to do that from the get-go anyway to be compliant with the FCA regulation and to get our FCA permission in the first place. You had to evidence that you had a certain baseline of you know, risk management and governance in place. Mm. So if you weren't doing that, I think that you, know, you probably wouldn't, because you wouldn't have that external impetus for, for complying with these things. 
and structuring your business in a certain way. You might not have the same sort of the same culture, I suppose, in terms of, I want to say, respecting those things. That's not really what I mean, but you know, in terms of taking those things into account and making sure that you've got a bunch of business as usual processes for doing for managing risk and compliance and information security and, and all the rest of it. You, know, you, you sort of have to, I guess, have a lot more uh, motivation. Yeah. <laughs> I feel I should say for, for people who might not be familiar, the FCA is short for the Financial Conduct Authority that regulates companies in the finance industry. Um, and I suppose everyone working with pensions comes under that umbrella, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I think most of our sort of fintech ecosystem is regulated in one way or another. Uh, you know, neobanks that are getting banking licenses, that's possibly the, the gold standard in terms of regulation. But um, the FCA can regulate you to do all sorts of different things. And mm. you can apply for those permissions in quite a fine-grained way. So that, that means that even companies that you know are only doing a small amount of uh financial technology would end up having to be regulated in some form or other i want to ask you a question that's a bit of a counterfactual but imagine that you had started the company and you'd never had that that conversation with your co-founder where you talked about always preparing always working with that future ipo in mind what do you think would have been different or to put it another way, what's what decision points were there when you think your decision was influenced by the fact that you were heading for that IPO in the future? Hmm, that's a good question. I think the first thing that comes to mind is the the board. And I certainly feel like at some companies, boards are going to be more impactful and effective than at other companies. Um, and the design of a board, you know, it's certainly at the early stages of businesses, it can be very much up to you, you know, who you want to have on your board. And some of them might not be even formal board, board members. They might sort of be advisors. And, and we did have an advisory board uh, for a while as well um, that was a bit more informal. But I, 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 you know, early on, when we were still in our first tiny office space, we were you know, appointing a chair, chairman of the board, um, a guy called Mark Wood. And he's... You know, he's got a, a really esteemed history in financial services. He was the CEO of Pru and AXA and went on to, to be a um, big mover in the pension industry generally, um, chairman of the NSPCC. So he was well known and he brought a lot of credibility to the business, which is very helpful because when we were trying to establish ourselves as a as a player in the pension industry and you know we wanted to work with you know big kind of industry groups like uh well Origo for example which is a uh, an an organization that runs a digital transfer system um which is is very helpful because it you know means we can use even an API to, to to request pension transfers rather than having to send letters uh between pension providers but that's a, a gated community and you've got to be allowed in and, and it's the membership, which is other pension pro providers that choose whether you can go in. So, you know, so building up credibility from an early stage was important for us there. And then also things like um, consumer trust, you know, we wanted to be able to say, yes, we're a new company in the, in the pension industry, but we're a well-run company. You know, we've got years of experience in terms of the team building this product and service for you. Um, you know, you can you can trust Pension B with your financial uh, well-being. You know, around your long-term savings. So that was a, a factor as well that you know influenced the choice of you know making sure that we could put 
you know, on, on the About Us page, like a strong management team, for example. Um, you know, building up that, going back to the board, building up the board with, you know, useful um, advisors from either our uh, investor base or our invest or our um, asset managers um, to kind of fill that out. And then in, in later years, uh, industry experts like uh, Michelle Cracknell, who um, used to run the pension advisory service and most recently Mary Francis, who sits on the board of Barclays. Um, so, you know, really kind of heavyweight board members that know what, what good governance at an organization looks like and will ask really pertinent questions in board meetings about, you know, your marketing plans or your, um, you know, your financial forecasts and your, your key metrics and how you're actually planning the growth of the business and kind of keep you honest there. Um, I think though that was really, really useful. And we probably, you know, wouldn't have spent so much time investing in growing such a, um, a solid board from the get-go if we weren't thinking about what does this look like in five, six years' time and how long does it, you know, particularly how long does it take to build, um, you know, a solid board like that. Just to, just to add to that, I think the other aspect of it is actually our information security program. And I think if we mm. hadn't have been wanting to um, align to or certify to something like I said, 27,001, that's this, this quite onerous and, and internationally recognized standard, um, we might not have put the effort in to, you know, to align to that early on and do a sort of a mini version of that and, and you know, know what the gaps were looking like in terms of implementation changes or policy changes over the years. Um, you know, and I can, I can talk about that information security side in, in, in as much detail as you'd like me to, because it's been very, uh, <laughs> a very interesting journey. But, you know, just in, in brief, I think that's an area where it's very, very easy to slip into not great practices around information security from an early stage. And it's quite hard to put in the discipline to run your information security program, um, you know, in a, in a way that you know is sort of best practice because it seems a bit over the top to begin with. And it's only as the company grows and you have more policies and procedures and, and checks and things that you start to see the value of it all. Mm, and you're glad that you did it early on. Definitely. When I've done technical due diligence projects on behalf of investors before, the areas that we've looked at feel like they've, I always used to group them into three clear categories in my head. One was the product and technology itself. One was the, the people and the structure of the team and the, the skills that they had. And then one was the process and the way the team and the organization as a whole works together. Do you think those three areas map onto the kind of preparations you had to do as well? And is there a, is there a kind of waiting between them? Because you've talked a bit about the, the process, and I think to some extent about the product as well and the kind of um, product changes that you've had to make to have good information security. Do they feel like the right three areas to be thinking about? And what do you think the balance is between them? Well, I think those are three areas that are very relevant to the development of a of a good business, and I think that they should be focused on, you know, relatively equally by any management team running a firm. I, without a doubt, if 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 you don't have solid product, solid people, and solid process, then you're going to something's going to go wrong. Um, but but I feel like the what was actually happening during the preparation for the IPO 
was actually much more geared towards understanding the risks that the, that were in the business. Um, and, and in some ways, that's an umbrella. That's an umbrella that you can put over those three areas and others. Um, but I feel like we spent a lot of time working with auditors to understand the risk landscape of the business and then to um, to mitigate any risks that they perceived. Um, you know, when I was talking earlier about the the auditing being very much about are you able to produce a an accurate set of financials every quarter that reflect the, the, the honest picture of the business? A lot of the risks that people are looking for are risks around that process. You know, are your finance finance processes well managed? Um, what's your treasury policy? You know, what's your um, what's your approach to uh, payment approvals or um, how do you do journal entries in your accounting system? You know, so lots of very sort of finance team specific things. And, and a lot of these come back down to information technology questions because a lot of the time the controls or the answers to the questions are, well, we do this and this in a system. And so then that opens up the question about, well, tell us about this system. You know, how is how how does access management work in that system and how does um, how is data integrity ensured in that system and how do you how do you audit what people do in that system and so on and so forth so a lot of a lot of the questions that I was answering during the process were coming out of the finance team because they were being probed into the risks around financial structure and financial reporting um, that the business would be producing I want to finish with one last question which is about the people and the roles and the skills. Did you have anyone with a, a dedicated role that would that was covering part of this, that a different company, maybe in a different industry, or that wasn't thinking about um, a public offering, wouldn't have had to have? So maybe did you have people in the, in the tech organization focus purely on information security or on data governance or on um, auditing or anything like that? Yeah, we, we did, um, but it, it wasn't really one of those things that you that you've just listed there. So we, we hired um, a lady called Lisa, and hired her probably about eighteen months before we started this process, um, or a year year to eighteen months beforehand. And she was hired with the title of general manager, and that was a, a nod to the management structure that you see in banks because her her sort of activity list, if you like, her to-do list was going to be around running transactions, um, fundraising transactions or debt transactions or that kind of thing. And an IPO is really a sort of fancy transaction. It's a, trans- it's a fundraising transaction in the public markets. And mm. we'd hired her with the knowledge that we wanted to pursue an IPO. And so we expected her to do some other type of commercial transactions, corporate transactions, and then work on the IPO. And then what ended up happening was that um, we brought forward the timeframe of the IPO due to the, the pandemic. And um, you know, so she basically got stuck in like quite early on in the job. Um, and her role really was to coordinate the whole, the whole transaction, which was um, an enormous amount of effort. And she was very ably supported by the CEO and by the board and by the finance team and, our, you know, our, our head of finance that was, became our CFO. And we appointed a finance director and grew that finance team in order to, 
you know, to, to, to bulk up the people that were helping there. Um, but on the information security side, because we'd already sort of done the audits by this point, there wasn't a need mm. to bring somebody in. And on the technology, at the technology departmental level, um, there wasn't a need to bring somebody special in to, to sort of tackle the IPO aspects because what we were already doing and the way that we ran, ran the technology team was already sort of geared towards um, that, you know, that sort of well-governed part of the business, that well-governed methodology. Um, so we sort of had those, those tasks already assigned, if you like. Mm. What I particularly like about that is that the, the person you hired, you hired in a role essentially based on the, the, the role that a bank would have. Um, which you'd already said was the kind of the gold standard of regulation. Well, I, I did mean an investment bank, uh, you know, so like managing director, VP, all those sorts of roles that you get in investment banks. Um, so mm. we, we sort of appointed her to that role because that would make her sound very credible when she was talking to investment banks because it's quite a senior role in a bank. But I think it's it's a nice illustration of what you were talking about, of planning for the IPO from the mm. beginning in that the structures that you're choosing and the way that you're thinking is not not necessarily based on the the size or shape of company that you have today, but on the size of the shape of company that you want to be or want to want to emulate. Ah well, if you've um, if you're looking for a book to read, then the E Myth Revisited is the classic uh, guide to doing exactly that in small businesses, um, and talks about planning your org chart for four or five years in the future and then you look at all the things that it's going to be doing and then you sort of say well you know we're doing bits of those things already it's just that my name is in all of the boxes you know if you're the only person in the business <laughs> or if you have two of you then you know you're in 50 percent of the boxes and the other person's in the other 50 percent and then as you grow the business you hire people in to fill to take take your name out of boxes and put their name in the boxes, mm. and it's a really nice. I just always stuck with me that sort of mental metaphor. I think it's a really nice way of thinking about your business. Yeah, I like that too. It's definitely what um what delegation has always felt like to me is carving up part of my role that uh, has become too big for its boots in terms of my time, and it's worth someone else doing, hopefully better. Jonathan, this was really helpful. I think this has been a super interesting discussion about how you aim for IPO, how you think about IPO and how you kind of structure your organization ready for it. Thank you, Howell. Join us again next time when we'll be answering another question that is primarily context-based. <laughs>